0: This is The Stark Truth,
1: hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com This is uh, Robert Stark, I'm joined here with uh, Peter Nemitz. Peter, it's uh, great talking to you.
0: Glad you had me on.
1: So, uh, I follow you on Twitter and your commentary uh, there, and we're going to primarily focus uh, on L.A., as well as numerous cultural and political topics. Uh, To start things off, uh, you're an expert uh, on Eastern Europe from another interview that was on uh, YouTube. But if you just want to kind of give some basic uh, background information about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, I've lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years, uh, spent a few months in Eastern Europe. I've quite a few friends from Eastern Europe, um, traveled, uh, you know, all over the kind of the greater Los Angeles areas, kind of Los Angeles County, Orange County, uh, San Bernardino County, talked to a lot of people, gotten their impressions on things. I don't really have any specific educational background that makes me an expert, but I try to read broadly, keep an open mind, and talk to a lot of people.
1: So we're focusing more on L.A., but uh, the only part of Eastern Europe I've been to is like the Czech Republic, which is the most uh, westernized.
0: Yeah, Czechia, you know, used to be the Kingdom of Bohemia, Um, you know, was always much more Germanized and more, more part of Central Europe than Eastern Europe in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, like, I was in, I mostly stayed in Bürno, which is, it's like an hour's drive from Vienna. Nice. How was it? It's not super touristy, but it was, it, yeah, I enjoyed staying there, and it was a good location for uh, travel. I mean, one kind of cultural comparison you can make is that it is, it is kind of a working-class city, but you still have all these amenities, like, cause it's just sort of, like, having, like, a kind of walkable... Type community, which is uh, Americans, kind of view as a luxury item.
0: Very nice. I'm I'm jealous. I wish Los Angeles was more like that.
1: Yeah. So you are a recent uh, transplant. Uh, I mean, I'm an LA native, and I've done numerous shows about uh, about LA on on the show in the past. So you're, a, I mean, you're a recent transplant, and you've traveled extensively around LA and SoCal for business. Uh, can you give your initial impressions? in which regions and neighborhoods uh, are you most familiar with?
0: Sure. Um, I mean, kind of the central area of greater Los Angeles is uh, area I'm most familiar with. So, you know, I know uh, I've been all the way up to Santa Clarita, um, you know, the north. Um, you know, I know pretty much everything down Anaheim, Santana in the south. And then to the east, maybe like Fontana or so. I'm not too familiar with uh, you know San Bernardino and uh, all those you know parts of eastern San Bernardino County or southern Orange County, uh, but other than that, I know the metro area fairly well. Although I've uh, I've never been to Compton and I've only been to Lynwood once, but I think I've made it to pretty much all the other neighborhoods in Los Angeles.
1: How accurate would you say that the stereotype or categorization of LA is just being? just being the very wealthy and the very poor with uh, no middle, how would you describe like the class structure? And there's obviously inequality, but there's there's more nuance than the stereotype.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot more nuance than that. Um, you know, there is, I think it's definitely shifting towards more inequality and more, uh, you know, impoverishment. Um, but there still is a large middle class. It's just more shifted between, you know, kind of your lower middle class where it's, you know, skilled labor and stuff, Um, you know, and unskilled labor, you know, which is kind of being crushed by housing prices. And then you have your kind of upper middle class, you know, which is more like the Hollywood types, um, you know, in the sense like the people that have the union jobs and design the sets, you know, the aerospace industry, the engineers, um, you know, the various legal types that, you know, aren't necessarily lawyers themselves, but in law or entertainment or that kind of thing. Um, you know, and they get crushed by taxes and also by housing as well. Um, and those two groups I think are kind of shrinking, but then you also have the increase of the, you know, ultra wealthy that can afford basically anything. And then, uh, you know, you have the extremely poor, which is the homeless population, which, you know, seems like it's been growing pretty much every year, even though it kind of had a dip off between 2018 and 2020.
1: It's an exaggeration to say that it's just the wealthy and the poor. But I do notice, like, you see, you have, like, the lower middle class and then upper middle class professionals, and the space between those is, uh, is kind of drifting away. Like, one example, if you're in the valley, the southern rim of the valley is, like, Woodland Hills, uh, Sherman Oaks, Encino, and that's all upper middle class.
0: I'm in North Hollywood.
1: Oh, right! So, yeah, you are very familiar. So, if you go over to the other side of the 101, it kind of dips over. To like, uh, to maybe lower middle class, and in that geographic area, there's not like one. It's just hard to like say like what like what classifies as like the real middle class. And I guess that would be like these, uh, these far out kind of suburbs, like Santa Santa Clarita or Simi Valley would, but uh, not so much in the valley,
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, Simi Valley, I mean, that's pretty nice, uh, Woodland hills. And like you said, kind of the uh, upper middle class is still doing you know relatively well there.
1: Kind of going over like my personal background on class, so my family was actually pretty solidly middle class, but the area we lived in was uh, fairly wealthy, Uh, I mean this was on the west side, kind of near uh, UCLA, and then the high school I went to was uh, more, a lot of more lower income students who were bussed in from uh, poor communities. So. The class dichotomy and distinctions in my environment were a lot more uh, complex.
0: Gotcha. So where were the students bust in from, like Inglewood and that area?
1: Pretty wide variety. So there was uh, I went, this was in West LA so there was a kind of working class community in West LA which is kind of below Santa Monica Boulevard and then between the 405 and Santa Monica and that was kind of traditionally the working class part of the west side and that's that's gentrified more since then, and then students from all over Inglewood, downtown LA, uh, I'm not really sure as far out as South Central, maybe like the Crenshaw District all over the place. The district it was in included like Brentwood and uh, Bel Air.
0: Okay, so see what everyone then, very rich and the relatively poor.
1: Well, yeah, if you're wealthy, you're automatically going to go to a private school.
0: Oh, I guess that's true.
1: It's interesting kind of looking at like recent uh, immigration statistics. So I found this on the site, uh, City Data Forum. And this was based off of, I'll I'll post a link to this when the show's posted, but kind of recent uh, uh, census estimates. So so like with the demographics uh, of my high school, like Latinos were the largest group. And then the decent number of uh, Blacks. Persians and then also Koreans. And then I would say that more generic white people was relatively low. Kind of interesting looking over like recent trends. So Koreans have historically been like the largest Asian group in LA and they're actually based on recent statistics are actually declining. And then with with Mexicans fairly stagnant, uh, Central Americans growing and growing pretty fairly significantly. Indians, I think, small, like a, traditionally a smaller group, but growing. Chinese are growing, and then I think Armenians, are kind of a modest growth. So it's interesting, kind of the stereotypes about like the demographics of L.A. and then the more kind of future trends. And uh, because I guess one one example is that it's kind of like the stereotype that California is becoming Mexico. And then like one trend I noticed is that China's. In the last decade, I think China surpassed Mexico as the top immigration source to California. So, And then the next decade, that who knows where the trends could go, but like, how accurate are those data based on your observations? And then obviously you're relatively new, so you can't really compare things to how they were 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, I've got kind of a weird, bifurcated view. I mean, my grandfather came to uh, Los Angeles in 1956, I believe and then left in 1972. Um, so, you know, I've heard his stories and seen his pictures from, you know, most of the 1950s and 60s. Um, you know, and then I have my experiences from being here 2014 to the present. Um, you know, so... But yeah, it's
1: interesting, because you, you came here 24, 2014. I, 2013 is the year I left L.A.
0: Okay. One guy, move, one guy leaves, one guy moves in.
1: There's this blog, and it mentions... Kind of communities that are very, that are more kind of obscure and less well known. And I think you were, you maybe it was you or maybe it was Steve Siller was writing about like that. There's an Uzbek community in L.A. because I never, I don't think I ever met anyone who was from Uzbekistan when I lived there.
0: Yeah, that was me. Um, it was weird when I first came here. I didn't know any Uzbeks. I mean, I, I immediately, you know, reached out to. uh, you know, see if there's an Eastern European group, I mean, unsurprisingly, um, you know, the main Eastern European group, if you even consider them European or the Armenians, um, you know, they kind of dominate the uh, Russian speakers of this area, but, you know, there's a fair number of Ukrainians, Russians, Jews, um, and, you know, all of a sudden, it's like overnight in 2018, like, all of a sudden, these Uzbeks appeared out of nowhere, and I started seeing them everywhere, um, which I thought was kind of strange, but...
1: I've met people from just about every corner of the world. Yeah, I'm not really sure if I've met anyone from that region. I do think, like, remember with Borat is uh, part of the reason that Borat was able to get away with making fun of Kazakhstan is because they didn't have a significant number of, of a diaspora who would kind of protest. I have heard, like, there are Bukharian Jews who are from that region. Like, there's a big community on the, some some of them in LA and the, more like, in New York. So the people from Uzbekistan, are they more, would you say, closer to Persian or more like Mongolian?
0: I mean, they're their own thing. All the uh, Turkic tribes from Central Asia were, you know, I mean, they had huge ranges and were pretty nomadic. They, you know, incorporated people from Mongolia, from Poland, you know, from India, you know, Iran. Um, So they're very, very diverse looking, you know, they can look like anything pretty much.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have seen documentaries about part of the world it is sort of like a hybrid of many cultures you said mongolian turkic turkic persian uh slavic so you this is mostly the community it's in the valley
0: yeah like specifically in my area and then you know even kind of in like east hollywood and that kind of area too
1: and uh S- steve saylor who i'm sure you're familiar with well he was writing the blog post like kind of men men in gold chains and uh just kind of—it's kind of a blanket term for just all these different immigrant groups that you mentioned, like Russians, Armenians, Persians, uh, Israelis. So, I mean, all the the West Side too, but I'd say primarily he's talking about like the Valley.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a stereotype for the uh, the Persians, the Armenians, especially. They love those gold chains and silver chains.
1: Yeah. So right now, uh, there is this uh, ongoing conflict uh, between. Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan around the contested, this re- disputed region Nagorno uh, Karabakh, and it does have some fairly uh, significant, I mean, geopolitical implications. Just dealing with the alliances, I do think so. With Armenia, does like because their diaspora is fairly is fairly influential. That does give them uh, some leverage. That So most, I would say most of the people in our political sphere are more sympathetic to Armenia. It is one of, I think it is like the oldest Christian nation. And uh, it is sort of, I mean, it is basically kind of a proxy war to a degree. Tur- I mean, Turkey is involved on the side of Azerbaijan and uh, Russia and Iran and the Assad regime in Syria. The kind of the power structure that is maybe in opposition to the... Kind of dominant neoliberal power structure is more sided with Armenia, so this could have some major uh, geopolitical implications. I mean, I have no idea if this, if other nations, uh, could get dragged in, but I mean, that does. There are, I mean, there are countless uh, historical examples for that. Like, what are your thoughts on this uh, conflict and the geopolitical implications?
0: I mean, the United States is in kind of an awkward position because. You know, on one hand, one of the U.S. government's, um, you know, main objectives with NATO and the EU is to try to, you know, basically neuter the Russians and make it so they're not a major power anymore. Um, you know, so our alliance with Turkey, uh, keeping the Bosphorus Straits and the whole kind of naval route under the Black Sea closed uh, to the Russians is one of those major, you know, strategic things. So, you know, the U.S. government tends to be very pro-Turkey. And then on the other hand, you have a lot of people who are very influential in this country, like, you know, the infamous Adam Schiff, congressman from Glendale and Burbank area, um, you know, about a quarter to a third of his district is Armenians. Um, and he and they, was the
1: one kind of pushing uh, Russia Gate. so I wonder, it would be interesting to see if this conflict could lead to maybe, maybe like a pro-Armenian Republican candidate or uh, even like a Democratic primary challenger it be interesting to see how he, if this gets really out of control, how he would personally handle this, because he's kind of, he has this large Armenian community, but then he's also linked to the whole agent, to the whole kind of, people who are, like, radically anti-Russia.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's well aware that, um, I mean, you know, I think every election there's usually a Democratic challenger who's an Armenian. Um, you know, I think last time they got 5% of the vote, they are ranked, like, 8th or something. Um... You know, but there is always that potential, and he's always very, uh, you know, attentive to the needs and interests of the Armenian community, and always one of the very first people to act in their interests. Um, so I think if Bush come to, came to shove, he definitely would side with the Armenians, even if it had to go against his whole support for Russia Gate.
1: And also, uh, Israel. I mean, Israel is important, and uh, Israel is uh, allied with uh, Azerbaijan. Well, not just Israel, but the U- the U.S. Its allies, including. Uh, Turk, I mean, Turkey used to be a staunch U.S. ally, not so much anymore, but uh, but Turkey is an ally. Then the U.S. and Israel are, are probably friendlier towards Azerbaijan. It's important because of uh, major uh, gas and oil pipelines, but also a lot of the foreign policy establishment want influence in Azerbaijan as leverage against Iran as well.
0: Yeah, the Azeris have always been... Um, had kind of a complicated relationship with the Iranians. Uh, you know, there's quite a few Azeris in the northwestern part of Iran that was always kind of the base for a far-left, um, you know, whether communists or, um, you know, liberal movements or kind of left-liberal movements, uh, you know, for most of the 20th century. I'm not sure how much the U.S. values that. You know, the city of Tabriz was a, a huge center for their liberal revolution in 1906 through uh, 1911. Um you know, and was also kind of a base for the uh, pro-Soviets in the nineteen forties. Um, I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to look into if the U.S. government still kind of sees that as a valuable connection. I think they've largely been assimilated, but I guess there's still enough of them that they can start riots in Tehran uh, even now.
1: Oh yeah, you know, like over the Iranian Yuziri, government's pro-Armenian sympathies, the separatists. Like, I, yeah, I could definitely see them kind of engineering that to weaken Iran. I know, like, uh, Terror House magazine was kind of was was kind of joking about uh, about like offering refugee status to uh, to all women like between the ages of eighteen and twenty five fleeing the conflict. But I mean, I mean, it's just kind of a joke. But regardless, regardless, I do think this conflict could have an impact uh, on the demographics of the valley.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting for sure. I mean, you know, a lot of immigration just kind of networking effects. If you've got a cousin or a sibling who's you know, already has their ethnic community in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco or whatever, Uh, you know, they're going to bring a bunch of their relatives here too. So, you know, with our large Armenian population, uh, you know, I'm sure a bunch of them would end up here.
1: Uh, I was talking about the Uzbeks. I think another, like, community you hear about that is really obscure is there's actually a little Bangladesh right next to Koreatown. There are these, like, all these kind of small communities. So I think... That are less well-known, so there's the big ones like Koreatown's famous, and then uh, like Terandulus, uh in Westwood, but then, like you have smaller ones. Like-
0: Little Bangladesh is kind of interesting because it's not, I mean, it's not like what you'd expect for regular Bengalis. Um, you know, it tends to be very disproportionately the Rohingya ref- refugees who are kind of of mixed origins, even though they speak Bengali, uh, from Burma. You know, and they tend to be You know, it's weird, like, Los Angeles is infamous for having, like, you know, notoriously liberal or atheist, you know, Muslim groups, and they're the only exception where I run into them and I'll see women in, like, kajabs and that sort of thing, you know, outside of maybe Irvine, you know, Yemeni population.
1: But it it does seem, like, overall, like, compared to other major cities, uh, New York, uh, Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, and Chicago, like, LA just has a, overall has, like, a much smaller South Asian community.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're uh, rising up fairly rapidly. I mean, um, you know, especially the Tamils, like in the chemical industry, um, you know, which I know doesn't get a lot of media attention.
1: Is this tied to sort of like Silicon Beach or a specific uh, region? But there's a place like Artesia is Little India.
0: Yeah. I think like Artesia. I think Artesia is mostly like Gujaratis and Punjabis though. I mean, the Tamils are kind of scattered around more, but... You know, they just kind of cluster on certain professions, like chemical manufacturing, and um, you know, like hydraulics for aircraft.
1: The aerospace industry has historically been like really big. Uh, I mean, there was a big decline after the Cold War, but there's still there's still a presence, like with uh, Elon Musk's uh, project uh, in uh, Hawthorne. He's sort of sort of reviving that a bit. But what do you see as like the key industries? Hollywood, obviously, being most uh, stereotypical. But how big is aerospace still? How big is uh, tech?
0: I mean, I think, um, shoot, I'd have to look back at it. I was looking at Los Angeles tax data a while ago. Um, I mean, kind of what you'd expect, entertainment, tourism was the number one industry. Uh, You know, we've got all the bunch of big studios here, even though, um, you know, like, Georgia's been trying to do its own thing, you know, bringing people away with tax breaks and special incentives. You know, New York has its own rival industry. Um, Chicago, I think, is thankfully committed like entertainment suicide for just by being a horrible state. Um, you know, I think next down. I mean, you have the aerospace industry, which is you know still huge. I mean, the big worry is that with Boeing having all the troubles, is that uh you know because um, so many people in Torrance work for Boeing or their suppliers that kind of Torrance and that part of you know greater Los Angeles are going to have a lot of issues. Um, you know, for more of Long Beach than the whole of Los Angeles. I mean, um, Los Angeles and Long Beach, I think, are the number two and number three biggest harbors by volume. In the United States, you know, so much of the trade we get from East Asia, you know, China, Japan, South Korea, you know, it all goes through, um, you know, either Long Beach or Los Angeles harbors.
1: From your observations, like any unique uh, L.A. tropes or archetypes that go beyond, like, the most uh, cliché?
0: Oh, yeah, tons of them. I mean, um, you've got, like, the infamous, well, I guess not infamous nationally, but kind of those ultra-rich, like, Persian party types. that You know, I mean, they're not Muslim at all, even though they have that background. Um, you know, and they're just rich and drive fancy cars. Um,
1: oh, you know? yeah, like uh, in Beverly Hills and uh, wealthier parts of the valley.
0: I mean, even not necessarily in the wealthier parts. I mean, I know people like that from my social status. They just spend all their money partying and eating out and are poor. (laughs) But, you know, that's their choice, I guess. Um, You know, the Armenians have their own, you know, like the Mexicans are a plurality of greater Los Angeles. I think they're, you know, about 45% of the population of the metro area. Um, So there's a lot of groups that, uh, you know, especially if they're kind of scattered, or don't have their own, you know, mass to have their own community, you'll have kind of the smaller groups get assimilated in the Mexicans. So I see that a lot with second generation Armenians who didn't grow up in Glendale, you know, like ones who grew up in Van Nuys or something.
1: With uh, Armenians, they do seem more economically diverse. Some of them are very wealthy, but they also have a fairly strong working class too. They're not, they're more economically heterogeneous.
0: Yeah, they've got a lot of, you know, their community is famous for its, um, you know, clannishness, which is both good and bad. I mean, um, you know, and if you're an Armenian and you just show up, you'll immediately get a job because there's going to be some Armenian guy that will stick up for you. You know, there's lawyers that cater to the Armenian community, Armenian doctors that cater to them. Um, They even got, I think, uh, in Pasadena um, themselves like officially designated as a oppressed minority so they can get affirmative action and government contracts and government employment so they have their own kind of networking racket there and uh, even for a lot of people that you know don't want to stay in the united states um, they'll come over you know they'll have like a contract with some armenian person who'll set them up with like you know a cheap house and then they'll just work for a year or two save up some money and then go back to armenia and you know i see quite a few people like that too
1: a lot of people who are opposed to immigration are criti- i mean—critical of those characteristics, but there are a lot of benefits uh, from being in a group that is high in a social capital. Like some people might use like the term nepotism in a derogatory sense. Importance of being part of like a community, but I would say that like looking kind of at more like more traditional, uh, more traditional white people in. California in general, in the LA region, uh, including like my own background, like both transplants and some of the Anglo's who have been in the region a pretty long time. I would I mean I would have to say that that like white Californians are probably some of the most individualistic people, possibly in the entire planet.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, although Irvine Chinese, my you know impression are pretty close as far as just total atomization.
1: There's a stereotype about China, about them being racist or clannish. You'd actually say they're more uh, individualistic than uh, than other immigrant groups.
0: Well, there's two totally different groups of Chinese in Los Angeles. There's the San Gabriel Chinese, who are totally mysterious, and everything that goes on in the San Gabriel Valley is totally opaque. They're all rich. They all drive nice cars. All of them are in between the ages of 40 and 60. They have like no visible senior citizens or young people. It's weird, but you know, they're totally insular and, uh, you know, they only speak Chinese to each other. Um, and then the Irvine Chinese are totally different. Um, you know, a lot of them, I mean, they're just totally Americanized. They speak English. Uh, you know, they're pretty young. Um, you know, they almost always out marry, you know, whether it's like a Persian or an American or whatever.
1: We will, I think we'll kind of see both, uh, both trends in the future because, uh, this discussion of, uh, like, there's concerns of Chinese colonization, and then on the other hand, like, there's this, uh, my friend Pilater, who's really into Asian women, and he advocates this, like, Asian Euro kind of fusionism as a way of life, but I actually think both of those are a reality.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, for, like, there's a difference between the really large countries like China, America, Russia, um, you know, the yes. Arabs, where... You know, you have these huge, like just vast peoples, where they're, you know, like hundreds of millions of them, um, and they don't have like an identity or nepotism and you know community networks as strong as like a smaller group. Like, you know, some of the Vietnamese that come here, um, you know, or especially the Armenians.
1: Or even with uh, with uh, India. So I think Americans tend to view India as this one monolith of over a billion people, but there are many different uh, groups. So someone who's from the Punjab, might view someone who's Tamil as, like, the equivalent district as, like, a Scandinavian versus a Greek.
0: I mean, I think it's a little bit stronger than that. Like, there is kind of a, you know, sub, you know, that kind of Indian identity they have that's weak, but it's still there, and all the groups have it. You know, because it's been, you know, going back all the way to the, uh, you know, Aryan invasions of, you know, the second millennium B.C., um, you know, in Hinduism, the Brahmanical class that, uh, you know, kept contacts across the whole subcontinent. Um, you know, but there are those sub-identities, like Gujarati, Tamil, Bengali, um, you know, for language, you know, and then you, as well as, you know, the caste differences, too. So it's a lot more fragmented, and a lot of those groups, um, you know, can be a lot more clannish than, you know, like a Chinese or, you know, an American would be.
1: As far as... Uh more kind of traditional white people in LA. I mean, they're mu- they're much larger like in uh, Orange County, like a lot of Germans settled in Orange County, but also places like Simi Valley and Santa Clarita. And then pockets like in Santa Monica too, like what have been your observations uh, on uh, the more generic white people?
0: I mean, most of the white people I meet are Armenians, you know, white Mexicans <laughs> and um, Persians. Um, you know, some Lebanese too, but it's actually pretty rare. Like I don't have any, you know, as far as like non-political stuff, I don't have any white friends or, you know, white neighbors or anything. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll run into them like doing work and stuff sometimes and talk to them and, um, you know, it kind of varies like the older people, I think, you know, it's kind of evenly mixed between like, you know, normal conservative Republicans, liberal Democrats, um, and then for the younger people, like if you go out to clubs and stuff, um, you know, it's very heavily democratic shifted, but then it's also extremely transplant based. I mean, the older people understandably have been here for a while. They have careers or they're retired, you know, own homes and the like. Um, you know, the white people, like especially in West Hollywood,
1: there are a lot of like regular white people, but they tend to be kind of more atomized, uh, transplants like the kind of the stereotype of the people who come here to uh, make it, yeah, to make it in Hollywood, and a lot of them, like, working as, like, waiters at nice restaurants, like, in, kind of, in Santa Monica, or West Hollywood.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of them, they kind of, you know, in in my experience, it's about, like, half Americans, half foreigners, like, you know, various Ukrainians, Russians, French, you know, Swedes that come over for, you know, the same reasons that the Americans do. They want to be in the entertainment capital of the world, or, um, you know, some of them come from the aerospace companies, too.
1: There's that uh, little kind of British district in Santa Monica, like the Kingshead Pub and uh, the Tea House.
0: Yeah, there's some stuff in the valley, um, you know, like a small, there's a couple thousand French and a couple thousand British, um, you know, kind of intermixed in that area. There's, you know, random Swedes and Ukrainians and stuff you know, they all seem to end up being waiters for a couple of years before getting married to someone more successful.
1: It does seem that, uh, like, certain groups uh, do well, kind of as, like, a, a more, the kind of more mercantile diaspora model, and it just seems that, like, those who are sort of within, like, the the area known as, like, the heine Line, which is basically most of northwestern to kind of central Europe, especially Nordics, uh, don't really, like, have, the traits to kind of survive uh the kind of environment that you could say america is headed in but especially like you do get people like a lot of scandinavians from the upper midwest who who might struggle in a cutthroat uh environment in uh like new nyc or la as opposed to groups that like hindus armenians jews or like the cuban community uh in miami groups that do really thrive
0: i mean i think it depends on what industry it is um
1: to kind of clarify what I mean, they can do exceptionally well as individuals, but I think that's different than as a group because they're kind of expected to succeed as an individual as opposed to benefit from the success of a greater group.
0: Yeah, that's pretty fair. Because I was going to say, I mean, um, like in aerospace, um, you know, and in like independent engineering firms, law firms, um, you know, uh, was... Another thing, like insurance companies, finance companies, I mean, ordinary Americans, like Chinese, you know, people from like non-clannish groups without huge patronage networks, I mean, still do very well.
1: Talking about people from kind of within the Heino line, I think the kind of exceptions to that rule is I think Mormons have done exceptionally well, and obviously the people who live in Utah, and they tend to be big in in finance, in business, uh, government. Even yeah, even Hollywood. I was also following a commentator who's he's South African who was in New Zealand, and he was saying that about Afrikaners from South Africa who immigrate to Australia, New Zealand, they do exceptionally well, and those people are, on average, wealthier. But also, like they have the kind of similar uh, patronage networks that are not like as stereotypical to people whose ancestry is from mm. Northwest Europe. But there maybe could be because they're adapted to that kind of environment.
0: Yeah, I think church networks are really valuable for, uh, you know, people that tend to be more atomized. Um, You know, like a hugely disproportionate number of the people who are like in a Chinese banking and Chinese business and stuff, you know, they're all evangelical Christians, you know, even though they're a relatively small portion of the Chinese community here. Yeah, I think it's similar for the Afrikaners. I mean, they've all got their, uh, you know, Dutch reformed churches. They kind of rally around.
1: David Cole, what he, was, he was well he was just kind of joking about like women were to look for a wife because all these guys go for for Russian. The, actually the context of this was uh, a casting call for a low, a low budget indie movie with uh, actresses Afrikaners from from South Africa. and I have no idea if anyone uh, tried tried this, but uh, that's just his advice he was throwing out there. I think he was speculating like whether're no, whether they're known for having a lot of attractive women. If I had to kind of guess, it's more just a kind of broadly, like, Germanic look that is generally kind of sought after, like, basically kind of similar to women from, like, Germany, the Netherlands, or, like, Scandinavia.
0: Gotcha. I mean, it's it's hard to find women like that here in Los Angeles, for sure. Um, you know, but we definitely have our own, uh, you know, groups that are pretty nice looking.
1: It really depends, like, what your, what your interest is. So the more, like, really kind of Germanic look... That's for very common in uh, Orange, like Orange County was settled by uh, Germans, and then also the kind of Central Coast region.
0: Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, it's just women like that tend to be extremely wealthy if, you know, they haven't left California. Um, you know, either that or they're working as waitresses in the valley trying to get into Hollywood. Um, so either see them in my area, you know, like there's a breakfast joint I really like that, you know, it's... All the waitresses are like that, um, you know. And then you also have, you know, the very wealthy areas, like you were saying, Santa Monica. You know, Newport Beach is kind of like that. Uh, San Clemente too.
1: It just seemed like in the past, kind of, you had people like that, but they were in a kind of broader, like a broader kind of mass middle class group, and they kind of declined, like demographically. But at the same time, then they became more a more kind of elite group. How that kind of re- reflects, like, the overall kind of a class ratification.
0: Yeah, they're definitely becoming their own, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to say ethnic group, but definitely their own class, you know, based around the coast and Manhattan Beach all the way down to uh, San Clemente.
1: That does kind of relate to uh, kind of trends of uh, kind of where we're headed. So uh, you retweeted this on Twitter. I put out this this poll, and this is purely hypothetical, about an uh, immigration policy like on a, on a local level. So basically, under the Constitution, the federal government has authority to grant immigration visas. So this is purely hypothetical. But basically, a proposal for hypo- hypothetically to grant immigration visas on the level of a, a town, city, or zip code. So uh, hypothetically, you would see cities that are tied to one specific nationality sponsoring more people from from those countries and then as far as a kind of a compromise uh argument so i actually my my responses were uh like i don't i don't think it's politically viable but i do think it's interesting as a thought experiment so uh i had a pretty i mean a pretty strong opposition from like anti-immigration types then there was maybe about uh Quar- about quarter to a third of people were sympathetic and then there's a segment I, th- I do think some liberals would oppose oppose it on grounds that it is kind of uh, they might see it as kind of a form of like segregation so it is kind of goes to that kind of model of like ethno pluralism or a kind of compromise so let's just say uh you have like a sanctuary city and then that city could uh and documented immigrants to become citizens directly by that city. But I do think it would, it would kind of take away uh, power of elites to uh, virtue signal and uh, politicians, corporations to decide kind of policy on mass, a chance to kind of directly influence uh, immigration policy on a grassroots level for both, actually for people on different sides. So as opposed to, like, monolithic special interests, it would be kind of interesting to see how it would work out. I mean, hypothetically, I would be really curious to see, uh, like, what type of immigrants or wealthier cities would would select. So, uh, like, say, Newport Beach, Santa Monica, Beverly Hills.
0: I mean, I think a lot of those places would just end up getting bought up by Chinese real estate developers, you know, who are either... Um, just trying to get their money out of China for whatever reason, or really like Southern California.
1: I mean, this is purely hypothetical. I think that could that could be a very likely uh, situation. You do have this kind of uh, like with uh, the Swiss Canton model. People kind of vote in vote in migrants. So uh, I guess you could say that like there's a term that floats around ethno pluralism, but basically you have the kind of like the MAGA movement and uh, like national conservatism and the idea of kind of taking back America en masse. But I just don't, I just see that as short-lived. Like my prediction for the future uh, of the nation is uh, basically that multiculturalism is inevitable. But I do think you'll see, you'll see like white Americans wanting to carve out their piece of the pie in uh, multiculturalism. So I guess, like, the best way to describe it is just sort of a multiculturalism, inclusive of whites, as opposed to how L.A. sort of is now, where, like, the whites are more atomized. That, I mean, that's basically where I see things going. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, that's one of the two kind of better futures I could see, where, you know, the United States becomes a truly multinational, you know, empire, for lack of a better word. Um, You know, we, you know, what whether you want to call us like ethnic Americans, whites, whatever, um, you, you, know, get explicit representation, build up our own patronage networks, you know, stop being demonized as like, you know, the end all evil. But, you know, we also concede a portion of the national narrative and, you know, leave it open for others. Um, you know, then there's castizo-futurism, which has been discussed too, where the, uh, you know, the two great, um, peoples of North America, you know, the Mexicans and the Americans, we merge together to form this kind of, you know, North American union that will, um, you know, kind of stand against the East Asian powers um, in the 21st century.
1: Yeah, I could uh, definitely uh, see that too. As far as like urban trends in LA goes, uh, the post-pandemic situation and uh, the last time I visited LA in January, right before the pandemic got started, but uh, there was a civil unrest kind of looting, rioting earlier this year, but then looking at actual crime statistics, LA is doing relatively well compared to other major cities like New York, Chicago, uh, Portland, Seattle, but you're hearing about uh, vacant storefronts, uh, these massive uh, homeless encampments uh, on Venice Beach. Uh, reports that uh, LA's po- I mean LA's population is declining or ha- I mean, has been stagnant even prior to the pandemic. How much of this uh, decline or decay have you noticed, and do you think it is overhyped by the the media, including uh, dissident or right wing media?
0: Yes, I definitely think that people hugely over criticize Los Angeles, and um, you know both you know, in the general public and, uh, you know, also right-wing sources and dissonant right. Um, you know, there's a couple different types of, you know, left-wingers. You have, you know, the literally insane people who are in San Francisco and Portland, um, you know, and increasingly Chicago and New York too, uh, who are overwhelmingly, uh, you know, kind of a heritage American, um, you know, recent, either that or recent um, Indian immigrant particularly Tamil and Magali background, um, you know, and, th- and then as well as a few like extremely radical blacks in the Black Lives Matter movements. And those three groups tend to be the ones that, yeah, those groups are kind of overrepresented and all. Um, and then you have, you know, by contrast, the, uh, you know, in Los Angeles, Miami, San Antonio, you know, they have like a larger, you know, Hispanic population, uh, you know, larger Asian populations, like particularly Chinese. Uh, they don't really go, You know, they're not into the disorder and the anarchism and, you know, they have, it's more like a labor left as far as like housing prices and that kind of thing being the primary.
1: A lot of people who do vote Democrat, they have fairly, fairly practical concerns. But I do do think with this really, really insane kind of woke stuff, I'd say it's probably like 15% or maybe 20 at most percent of the population that is kind of just bullying its way towards uh, the main institutions, including activists, but also some people who are influential in those institutions.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more of a class issue than anything else. It's just some, you know, some ethnic groups are more, you know, represented or less represented in various classes than others, and those classes, you know, as well as the ethnic background, determine their political views, you know, on top of quite a few other factors.
1: I do think with sort of, uh, with immigrant groups and political trends of the horseshoe of uh, class and politics. I'm not sure if you've seen that. Uh, it shows like the plutocracy, the managerial class, the petty bourgeois, and then the working class and like how they're aligned, whether we get neoliberalism, uh, left-wing populism, a rightist version of populism. So like, I think political strategists have been looking at immigrants and dividing them between just well-off and poor. One trend I'm noticing like there's a key distinction between small business owners like the petit bourgeois, those aspiring to maybe get there. That would be someone who's maybe like a like an auto mechanic and then just kind of like the managerial class with the managerial class being aligned with neoliberalism. And then the petit bourgeois could be either conservatism or could also be a kind of like centrist populism.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, We can kind of see it here in California. Um, We're, you know, we have the top you know, it's an open primary so that the uh, two top two vote getters who, you know, in a lot of cases are two Democrats end up winning. So, you know, like what you were saying, we kind of get the woke neoliberals and more of the, you know, populist left candidates that run against each other. You know, in that case, you know, we, I mean, I'm not sure your class background, Um, you know, but as kind of an average middle class guy, I always tend to support the, you know, populist left types over the woke neoliberals.
1: Basically the same way as, so when it comes to voting is, uh, I go, I mean, I actually go back and forth. I sometimes vote Republican in California state elections, but then I also, uh, will vote for the progressive or populist left against the establishment. The way I vote is I just vote for who I see as more anti-establishment rather than left or right.
0: And that's interesting. I mean, when you say establishment, do you th- think of the establishment as more of the people who support kind of the NIMby policies and restrictions on housing building, or
1: yeah, we can get into that in detail. I like, there's a kind of emotional reaction to kind of give the middle finger to the establishment, but then there are like both like a Bernie Sanders type leftist or even like a more YIMby type left I'm thinking about like, also like what is your like material of benefits?
0: I mean, as I kind of see it, California is a one-party state and will be kind of for the inevitable, you know, for at least the medium-term future in the next 20 years. Um, You know, in the top three issues, they don't have anything to do with national issues. Um, You know, California is a great labor market. I mean, you can earn more here than you can in other states. I mean, the three issues are, number one, by far, is housing, Uh, number two, you know, this I think is more of a Los Angeles thing than, you know, the Northern and central parts of the state is water, you know, just given how expensive water is. And then number three, um, again, this might be Los Angeles area. I don't spend much time North of, uh, Santa Clarita, um, is transportation, just how ridiculous traffic is, how poor the public transit is, um, and how so much more of it needs to be developed. But, you know, NIMBY interests kind of block it at every turn.
1: That's definitely, uh, true. And, uh, Looking, I mean looking at the leadership as, I mean as a one-party uh, state and just kind of the overall state leadership it, it may be inevitable that we'll be a one-party state for the next uh, uh, next uh, few decades uh, but just look kind of looking at uh, the California GOP just uh, how out of touch they are with uh, younger voters and then and then just kind of urban concerns. You do, like, have uh, well-off retired people who who have been kind of long-time conservatives and they have uh, concern about, like, protecting their assets with Prop 13. Like, uh, the kind of a new ballot measure, like a property tax proposal to allow people over 55 to transfer wealth over. And then there's a lot of, there are certain special uh, like the ranchers and the big agriculture, that want looser environmental regulations but, uh, the thing is, is even if they completely transformed, I don't even, I'm not sure how much of an impact they could make, but it just seems like they're totally out of touch with the main issues that are facing, facing, uh, California. So just if, if I were to give like hypothetical advice to, uh, like a hypothetical, like new GOP for California, or even if I were to give hypothetical advice to like, a to a Democrat who's anti-establishment or a third-party candidate, so one key thing is uh, so rebuild. I mean, rebuilding infrastructure—that's uh, obviously a uh, huge. I think also uh, supporting. Well, yeah, I mean, supporting entrepreneurship, but a, a lot of conservatives do tend to side more with the more established corporations like uh, Will Capital. The big things would be infrastructure, the housing crisis. Uh, and then uh, education is uh, huge as well. I don't even think it's necessary to like get that much into uh, a lot of the sort of nationwide uh, culture war stuff and the thing is the California GOP they're not like there are Trump supporters but the California GOP establishment they're generally not crazy about Trump, but they're more a lot of them are more kind of tied to like the like the old guard GOP establishment that existed prior to Trump but they basically have no vision. Uh, For the future,
0: yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, I think one of the things that really kills California, both in the Democrats and the Republicans, is so many of the people here have national interests rather than state interests in mind. You know, like Gavin Newsom going up and you know doing a photo op in front of the fires, saying, "Oh, this is proof that you know global warming is real." I mean, yeah, it is, but we still got to do something about it.
1: I'm not a climate a climate change denialist. It is it is a crucial issue. But It's a way to avoid kind of taking taking responsibility. Yeah, I mean that is kind of an interesting thing with uh, with Calexit, Is hypothetically if it were to happen, like I think having a one par- having a nation with like one one party state with the current Democrats would be a disaster. But I actually think if collectit were to hypothetically happen, it would create like a whole new uh, political system with whole new uh, opposition parties.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought. You know, think too either if the Democrats would fragment another
1: there is a new third party called the California National Party which is affiliated with the Collectivist movement. I'm trying to think of a good a good way to kind of classify them ideologically. I'd say like center center left uh populism. So, third, I mean third third parties have always been dismissed, but I'd actually it would be great if they were to to take off uh, as a party.
0: I really hope they do. I mean, I think um I mean, one of America's problems is it's just too large. I mean, you know, for countries, you know, you can either have India where it's extremely federalized, or you can have China where it's totalitarian dictatorship. I don't think America is really up for either of them. And if we just split into a couple different pieces, you know, it'd be a lot better off for everyone. Just keep some kind of, uh, you know, European Union type, you know, free trade thing going on, and just destroy all the nukes. So we don't have to worry about those.
1: One thing with uh talking about uh the decline of l a is uh there's a blog urbanize l a and you can also follow them on twitter and it is actually remarkable l a is like getting a lot of new uh a lot of new uh proposals and development like a lot of the kind of kind of missing middle type development like mid rise uh or mixed use uh like apartments condos going up but some more grandiose kind of glitzier developments like some like new high-rises proposed uh in a miracle mile hollywood and there's this proposal next to the beverly hilton hotel which looks really like totally futuristic kind of these garden towers like something you see in singapore so sometimes like what happens is development proposals uh get built and depending on the economy they may i mean projects do go bankrupt but these new proposals, I do think they contradict this idea that uh, that you're hearing from, like, Ben Shapiro that L.A. is a uh, complete, like, collapse.
0: Yeah, for the population decline so far, it's really just been, you know, sort of like San Francisco, some of the distance commuters, you know, have left the city. But mostly it's that the restaurant industry has been wiped out. You know, I think kind of the food preparation employed about 5% of the people in greater Los Angeles, Um, you know, and a lot of those people have just gone home to, you know, wherever they're from, whether it's in other parts of the country, um, you know, or back to Mexico, El Salvador, Ukraine, Armenia, Vietnam, um, you know, because there's just no point staying here. And that's not really an exodus that hurts the city and metro area.
1: Oh, so with the remote work exodus, people like Ben Shapiro are making it seem like that it's exodus of the wealthy. You think it's more an exodus of the working class?
0: Well, apparently it's just my lived experience. I mean, I know people who are in the working class, and I don't know anyone who's rich. So, you know, maybe I'm just being biased. Um, but that's just been my general impression.
1: With the whole YIMBY issue, uh, conservatives have sided with uh, NIMBYs, and uh, I wrote an article about this, uh, the one it was about the wealth gap for the UNS review, but I touch upon the the housing issues, and the thing is, is, like, the people, people are the kind of the forefront of the NIMBY, they tend to be mostly, like, kind of boomer, uh, limousine liberals, but uh, conservatives are kind of aligning with them. The left is, like, they are talking about, about changing the suburbs in explicitly anti-white uh, terms, like diversifying and densifying the suburbs, so that, that, I mean, that is an issue as well. I mean, I'm not really a big, uh, fan of sprawl, like, there is this massive, like, there is this massive new, uh, new development, uh, near Magic Mountain, like, near Santa Clarita, called New Hall Ranch, which could house up to, like, 50,000 people, and, uh, I mean, I'd much rather just have that area as, like, open space or preserve it as wilderness, but it does, it does, like, reflect upon, like, this, uh, this housing crisis, and the thing is, I mean, it's a practical way to sort of build up the middle class, uh, to stop the exodus, uh, uh, family formation, and then potentially as a way to to build up a new voter base for whichever side chooses to pick this up. But the thing is, even if you're just a conservative who just all you care about is owning the libs, like the best way to do that would be to like upzone the Democratic, the donor base on the West side and the Silicon Valley.
0: Yeah, it'd be an interesting idea. I don't think we could ever get it through, unfortunately.
1: Like the Scott Weiner bill, the Democratic senator from San Francisco, that didn't pass. I mean, I think I think the long-term trend uh, is towards more yimbyism and density, even with like the urban exodus. It's just sort of a it's sort of a long-term uh, process, and even within existing within like existing kind of zoning laws, you are seeing like a lot of these kind of like mixed-use developments popping up around L.A. I think another another big issue is uh, like education reform, and uh, conservatives, Republicans, and Trump too have been uh, talking about uh, school vouchers, and I uh, do I do think that the education system is a huge factor for these for these trends that we've seen in California, like the white flight or just middle class. Uh, flight in general, kind of lack of, uh, family formation. And, uh, yeah, it also, I mean, it also contributes to a lot of these like new kind of uh, sprawl developments. And, uh, there is discussion about income inequality, uh, impacting, uh, the working class. But if you have like an upper middle class couple in LA, like that does, if they have to pay like 50,000 annually for, uh, private, for private school, I mean, that, that is a tremendous burden. So I think, yeah, it's even putting, like, a strain on the upper middle class.
0: Yeah. In in general, I mean, it's a nationwide thing. Um, I don't know if the specific demographic breakdown for Los Angeles, um, but the two most fertile groups are people that earn over $1 million a year and people that earn less than $20,000 a year. You know, it's everyone in between that's getting crushed, you know.
1: I've noticed that in L.A., like, you see families in lower-income areas, but also like in places like Calabasas and the pacific palisades but you go to the places that are mi- a middle income middle class and it's either older people who are uh well, es- like well established or it's also uh it's basically like just single people and couples in uh small apartments so it's a it's yeah it is a theory of like the U shaped trend in uh fertility but uh, I am like sympathetic to uh to like education reform to vouchers it should be for for homeschooling, uh, as well. And then there are like conservatives who, who view education as indoctrination. I guess kind of the different, like the different critiques. What's interesting is conservatives are selling it more. they're selling vouchers more to kind of low income minorities more so than they are to, to the middle class. And the left critique is that vouchers primarily benefit like people who are well off could mean that in like a racial context uh, too. Then there are some dissent right types who are opposed to it. They do view it as just uh, as basically like affirmative action. But I would say it all it all really depends like how it would be uh, implemented. I do have like a personal bias in favor of middle, the middle class because that's my own background. But I do think that actually the left has a point that it might it, it might actually not. Be that effective in uh, helping like the lumpen proletariat, but uh, I'm obviously—I mean, I'm sympathetic to it if it's done the right way, based on the points that I listed.
0: I mean, I think vouchers has been tried before, and it ran into issues with the uh, teachers unions, right?
1: That's that's going to be huge of the teachers unions, and then also, uh, like, do private schools, because it's a very selective and elitist kind of process, and uh, would they be pressured by the state? to choose certain students. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a whole a lot of different, uh, different uh, issues uh, with that, with just kind of LA in general, uh, just speculating future uh, trends, demographic trends, and just kind of urbanist trends. Like, what are your thoughts on, like, where do you see LA in like 10 to 20 years? Like, what do you see as like the overall, like class structure of LA in the, based on current trends, then how sustainable do you see the trend of uh, gentrification?
0: I really hate making predictions. Um, it's There's so, so many different things that could happen. You know, I just think given the way the population is, it will do, continue to do well much as Miami and San Antonio will, even as the other, you know, mega cities do uh, poorly with Law and Order and um, everything, you know, over the next decade. Uh, you know, there are the issues with the pensions, which every area has. Um, I think the Long Beach, I think really the trifecta. We have the aerospace industry, we have entertainment, and we have two major ports. Um, so those three things will make sure that Los Angeles does at least okay. Um, you know, it's hard, I mean, we've got, uh, you know, Gascon right now, who's currently looks like he's going to be Jackie Lacey for district attorney. Um, I don't think he's going to be good, I think he's kind of turn us into kind of a legal version of San Francisco, you know, just make it hard for the police to pr- prosecute criminals and the homeless and all the problems they cause, uh, you know, so that'll cause a lot of issues with gentrification, you know, reverse it or, um, you know, undo it entirely in some areas. Um, but then on the other hand, you have stuff like, you know, entertainment gets better and better each year, you know, food is very sedative. You know, those kind of secular factors are driving crime down as well.
1: Uh, I mean, who knows what will happen with the pandemic and economic crisis. But uh, that's impacting all the nations. Like, I don't think L.A. is at a major uh, disadvantage compared to other, I mean, other major cities. I mean, in in some ways, uh, I think L.A. could actually benefit from the demise of New York. Yeah, it
0: definitely will.
1: That actually did happen back in the 70s and 80s. uh, New York's demise did did pump in a lot of wealth in Delhi.
0: Yeah, I mean, I still worry about the housing, I worry about the water, and I worry about the electricity too, which are three issues where, um, you know, I think the Los Angeles government's aware of them, just the California state government, Um, I mean, a lot of our electricity we get from a coal power plant in Utah, and we've shut down, you know, two nuclear power plants here, which is pretty unfortunate.
1: With nuclear power, I'm sympathetic to nuclear power because it's a way to produce large amounts of electricity. It doesn't contribute to climate change like fossil fuels. The only thing is you do have to take into account that uh, we're in an earthquake zone. So the two major ones were San Onofre near north of San Diego, and then Diablo Canyon in the central coast. So you do have to kind of do have to factor in earthquake zones. But uh, I mean, I'm sympathetic to solar as well, but I don't, there are more limitations on how much solar you can provide.
0: Solar is actually a really interesting opportunity. Um, You know, I was skeptical of it 10, 12 years ago when people really started selling it. But uh, with all the subsidies and research that's gone into it, it's it's actually become a cost-effective method of electricity. And, you know, here in Southern California, I mean, we've got the, uh, you know, Mojave Desert. We could build just giant solar farms, and I think we should to generate electricity. It
1: just seems to be that, yeah... Just kind of the infrastructure in general, like there does really need to be like a push uh, to invest uh, in infrastructure. I mean, what are your thoughts on like the mass transit in LA? Like they are ex- there's that Expo Line from downtown to Santa Monica, and then the Purple Line is uh, that's soon to be op- that's soon to be extended to Beverly Hills.
0: I mean, the- Beverly Hills shut down the extension, right? Or did they end up? Getting, they delay.
1: They blocked it and delayed it. Ironically, it was actually Kamala Harris's husband who was involved in the in the lawsuit. But it is it is actually going through and it will open in the next couple years.
0: Good. That's good to hear. Um, I mean, I was really impressed. Uh, you know, I spent a bunch of time in Kiev and Moscow with their um, you know public transit systems. You can get pretty much anywhere in those cities within. Um, you know, maybe half an hour by taking their metro for, you know, the equivalent of maybe 20 to 40 cents. Um, Now, I mean, Los Angeles is a lot more spread out than even Moscow is, so it'd be difficult. But, you know, I do think we could at least connect kind of Burbank to Downey to Santa Monica to, you know, Pasadena in a very uh, dense, um, you know, metro line, which, you know, I know would be is difficult because we have earthquakes and a lot of seismic activity here, too.
1: Uh, before I wrap up the show, uh, do you have any thoughts uh, on uh, the election, Trump versus Biden?
0: I mean, I haven't really paid much attention. Um, I assume Biden's going to win. You know, I bet a bunch of money on him. seems pretty much guaranteed at this point.
1: Peter uh, Nemitz, it's been an excellent show. Uh, thank you so much for being on.
0: Thanks for having me on, and hope you have a good rest of your evening.